0: our guest preacher this morning is mike mantooth mike mantooth is a head elder here at double oak uh, community church he is a community group leader at double oak community church he is a volunteer in multiple ministries here at double oak community church and he and his wife melissa serve us very well uh and mike is also my friend and i'm super excited for you to hear from him this morning mike Two things kept me up last night. The first one was, how would this get here? With everything I had in my hands, so thank you, William, because that's the second time he drug it over. The second thing was, would my Aunt Libby get here on time? And she's here, so thank you for getting here, Aunt Libby. Whoo! Never know of her. Better late than never. Well, hey, good morning, my name is Mike Mantooth. I, I really just view myself as a, as a member of this church The youth, have y'all ever heard my real name? They call me Twinkie. That's my my youth name. That's my youth name. And actually, uh, one of the guys who branded that this morning, my best friend since third grade, is here, Matt Dark. So y'all can thank Matt for that name. He he helped it stick. So I told him I was going to embarrass him. But anyway, look, I'm glad you're here with me this morning. As you can tell, Adam is not here, he's on another continent. I'm not real sure where, because they kind of got misplaced at some point uh, via flights, but they're headed to Romania to, to do a mission trip with VBS, and there's several of our folks that are with him, so uh, we'll be in prayer for them, and they'll keep us updated on that progress. But uh, as, I, as I come this morning, it's, it's interesting. Um, in the first service, I told them that uh, this is my first sermon. Technically, it's now my second, because I just finished one. Uh, So, uh, this is my second sermon, and I just need two things from y'all, if that's okay, because this is a two-way street, right? Um, The first thing I need uh, is is one of my love languages met. My first one is physical touch. We're not going to go there. (laughs) My second one is words of affirmation. So every now and then, I just need like a head nod or a thumbs up or... Maybe an amen, you know, if you're like in tune, Steve's over there fist pumping, yeah. Okay, are you through with your donut? Because I don't want you spraying that on people when you say it. All right, good. So, um, this morning, I want to open up in a word of prayer before we dig into God's Word. So if you will, bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity to talk to your church this morning, who I'm a part of, but... Nothing I can say, nothing I can phrase, nothing I can explain will do justice to Your Word. Your Word is the authority. Your Word is the power. It has the power to change us. So Holy Spirit, I pray right now that um, even as we begin this second service, that You would just take the words that I had in my head away and, and put words in my mouth. Just help me be a mouthpiece. And I pray that You would help our hearts be receptive to the Scriptures this morning, and to the truths and the doctrines that we're about to discuss with one another. And I pray that it would only glorify our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. And the church said, Amen. Amen. That, was your, that was your first test, by the way. Thank you. So, I'm a slide guy. It helps me. I need themes. I need... Uh, something to help keep me on track. So I had to give this sermon a title, and the title of it is Counterfeit Identity. Now, um, when you see the word counterfeit, you might be wondering where's he going with this, but I do want to give us some, some framework for that. So my lovely wife, Melissa, sitting right down here, been married 20 years. I've known her since third grade too, by the way. We didn't like each other until we were seniors, but it worked out. You know, Love her more and more every day. And uh, yeah, but she really gave me the idea behind this. She grew up in the, in the financial institution industry, and she was like a teller at a credit union, and she just kept moving, and now she's into the financial crimes, white-collar crimes world, which is super secretive, and she can't tell me about it, and she just loves that and geeks out. When I ask her a question, she's like, I can't talk about that with you, you know. and I'm like, whatever. But anyway, she had went to a conference some years ago, and she, uh, she came home and I was like, so what would y'all do at the conference? She's like, babe. That's kind of what she calls me. She's like, look, counterfeit currency. It was amazing. Like there was all this counterfeit currency. And these people were showing us the CIA, the FBI. And I've probably already told you too much. But um, they were showing us how to spot it and da 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 And I was like, that's pretty cool. Like what does counterfeit currency look like? She's like, it's counterfeit, right? And so she said, but the counterfeit's not that important. She's like, that's not really what they study in order to catch the criminals. She said, they just know the original, authentic bill. That's what people who bust counterfeiters do. They don't worry about counterfeiters trying to counterfeit because they know if you study the original long enough, you will easily spot a counterfeit because counterfeiters constantly change what they try to put into circulation. So, this morning, I want to talk about our counterfeit possibly us having a counterfeit identity because that's what the enemy seeks to do to both non-believers and believers alike okay now i need to get into a little more definition about what uh, identity is so this next slide that they're gonna flash up is actually gonna define these words in a little better phrases than i can and so uh, a, a, a better definition of counterfeit a, as it's going to relate to this morning's message is uh, counterfeit is intended to imitate something authentic with the intent to steal, destroy, deceive, or to replace the original, okay? So that's really what counterfeit means. And then when we think about our identity, I'm not going into the physical identity and all that kind of I'm going into our spiritual identity, who we were created to be, going back to Adam's sermon series about marriage in Genesis 3, we were created in the image of God. And so when we think about that identity, that's really what defines us. So think about in your, in your mind our character, your qualities, your beliefs. All these things shape our identity. Uh, The perspectives that we hold, the experiences that we have had through life, they manifest themselves in our identity, but actually, in a very real way, they do it through our emotional being, our physical, but also our spiritual being. And you can't get away from this. I would invite you this morning to meet me in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And we've already read this passage. But I do want to read it again, because it is going to ultimately convey to us... If you can go to that... uh, Yeah, this slide. It's ultimately going to convey to us God's desire and, 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 and His will. So what I want to do this morning with us is I want to start with the authentic, genuine article. What God intended for you and I, as believers in Christ to be defined by. And there's a phrase in this passage of Scripture, and it's underlined on the screen, and I know it's, I know it's small, but it's underlined on the screen. And it's the phrase, in Christ, or in Him, or in the Beloved. <coughs> Let me read this for us. Blessed be God our Father, and our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ... "...with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved." Beloved is capitalized because it represents Christ. of His glory. Whew! That is a mouthful. got to take a drink. This section of Scripture is one of the most beautiful descriptions of what it means to be in Christ. Paul has so much trouble trying to describe it that he can't find a place to put a period. Like it's a huge run-on sentence in the original text. And it's a mouthful. And he really breaks Ephesians chapter 1 up into two sections. This first section that we just read is kind of a, a section you could call the praise section. He is praising God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for our identity that we find in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, growing up, I had some wonderful pastors that I was able to be shepherded by, and they always told me, when you see the, the triune God or the Trinity represent, represented in Scripture, what do you draw out beside it? Oh, good grief. Here we go. My love language, affirmation, come on, what do you draw beside it? A triangle, yeah. Yeah. It just represents the Trinity. It's a little symbol. just kind of keys you in. Thank you, Will way, You're the only one I heard. Um, I'll give you a donut after the service. Here's the thing. The, the, the triune God is represented. We're going to see that in a minute. But there's something else represented in this passage. And if you look at the words that are underlined or the phrases, it's the description of our identity in Christ. So 11 times Paul uses the phrase, in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved, to Himself, to describe our spiritual identity. So, if you like symbols in your Bible, start underlining those phrases and just draw a little stick figure out beside them because He's trying to transcribe to you, this is who you are. meant to be, it's God's desire and will, it's made possible through Christ, and it's made a reality through the Holy Spirit. Okay? And just so you know, if, if, you know, depending on translation, but if you were to go through the entire New Testament, you would count this phrase about 160 times. Scripture's full of it. And it's because it's very important. If we go to the next slide, I want to I point out to you, uh, I highlighted in teal for us, that God the Father is the subject of many of the verbs that are highlighted. So when when we think about what was God's desire and what was God's will for us, we see it here with these verbs. So it says, Blessed be the God and Father who has, it was Him who blessed us. It was Him out of love who predestined us. It was Him who chose us and blessed us in Christ. It was Him who lavished upon us the wisdom and the insight. It was Him who made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose. God's desire and will, His sovereign will that nothing would thwart, did that. And He does that through the hearing of the Word. But if you go to the next slide, there's something else that we need to key in on. And it's this. In the gray, God needed an intermediary. An intermediary to step in and to make those things that He willed and desired a reality. So if, if you were to go through and underline every pronoun to represent Jesus... In this passage, you would find around 15 where Jesus Christ is mentioned either by name or name, or with a pronoun. And so what Paul does is he moves from God's desire and will to the actual implications of the new spiritual identity that we find in Christ. Look at them. They're in gray. Here's some, uh, some implications of what it means to be in Christ. The first one is... Since God blessed us, He's the, the, you know, the subject, that's the verb, in Christ, through Christ Jesus, we now receive every spiritual blessing. That's a sermon in and of itself. Just that, that one phrase. I forgot to highlight in the heavenly places, that's the eternity and the inheritance that we'll one day get when we become glorified. He chooses us through Christ... Before the beginning of time, which is just mind boggling, to be holy and blameless. He chooses us and predestined us for adoption. Now, that's an interesting word. And you know what the Greek word for it is? Adoption. It's the same, there's no, nothing crazy there. <laughs> I had to use one of those. But it's interesting why would God need to adopt something that I thought we had in Him already? He, he called us sons first, right? So, why is there a need for adoption? Actually, Paul's transcribe, or, or, or transcribing something to us here. We're going to get to that in a minute. But that is the spiritual reality we have in Christ. We have redemption. Which is, again, another word. It's like, well, hold on. I thought I was made in the image of God. I thought I... I thought I was holy and blameless. Why would, I, why would I need to be redeemed for something? Forgiveness. That's a reality we get through Christ. The Holy Spirit helps us understand the mystery of God's will. God's Word helps us understand the mystery of His will, which is why we have to be in it. Unity. Boy, do we not need that ever. More than ever. An inheritance. A coming day of glory. He gives us hope. That becomes a reality that we get. A supernatural hope. Because when you look around at today's world, you're not going to find hope in it. And if you do, it's just temporary. It's just a pop. He's going to give us absolute truth. Not relative truth. Not truth that I make up and I define. It's His truth salvation. He gives us the the, the ability to believe and He seals it. Look who He just introduced. The third member of the Trinity, of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, now becomes responsible for the reality and the sealing because as Christ is crucified and buried and then resurrected, and He ascends into heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit to us. And so now it's part of the Spirit's functionality, if you will, to remind us and illuminate all of these truths to us until we reach that day in glory. Now, there's no way that I'm going to do justice to this passage I think we could preach on it for the rest of 2023 and you're not going to run it down. It's too rich. Because in this passage, there are no bookends to it. Think about it. When did this occur? Like you can't say at the beginning of time. This was prior to time. This was in eternity past that God willed and desired this. And then we actually see that he makes it; uh, he sends Jesus Christ, his son, to to bring this redemption and this forgiveness of our sin. So it it also happened on a timeline a couple thousand years ago, and then and then it's it's a reality today because he has, he has sent his Holy Spirit to indwell us. But it's also speaking of things in eternity's future. It is really hard for us to get our minds wrapped around the richness of this passage. And in the next section, if we were to tackle it today, the the second half of Ephesians chapter 1, I told you this first half is kind of the praise section. The second half is the prayer section. This is where Paul will actually pray that those who have their spiritual identity in Christ will grasp the fullness of the blessing because he knows And now we know that it is a lot to take in. But I want to go back to the reason why he has to use words like adoption, like redemption, like blood, and forgiveness. So as we go to the next slide, I want to read one of my favorite commentators, John Stott. And John Stott's going to give us some advice. You see, that's what God intended. I told you I was going to cover the authentic, genuine thing that God desired, God willed, that Jesus made a way for and that the Spirit wants to help us realize. But there's a problem. We have an identity crisis. Any person born after Adam and Eve faces the same crisis. And Ephesians chapter 2 is about to tell us what that is. So I would ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. But before we read the verse, uh, John's going to give us some clarity. He says, before we look in detail at this devastating description of the human condition apart from God, we need to be clear that it is a description of everybody. Paul is not giving us a portrait of some particularly decadent tribe or degraded segment of society, or even of the extremely corrupt paganism of his own day. No, this is the biblical diagnosis of fallen man and fallen society everywhere. It excludes nobody. So, welcome. You're in good company. Nobody has to feel alone. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Again, we, this is a whole sermon series, right? But I want to point out a couple of things here. After the fall, we all have an identity crisis. And we find ourselves really defined by three words that this passage is going to point out. And this isn't the only passage in Scripture, but it's all we have time for. And here are the three things. We're all dead. We're all in bondage. And we're all condemned. Happy Father's Day. (laughs) Man. Are y'all with me? We good? Three thumbs up. <clears throat> Whoever said that, I got a donut for you after the service. It'd <clears throat> be like Lamberts and throw them in. That'd be cool. Not really. Uh, man, where was I? Yeah. So this passage, it does three things. It, 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 it tells us that we're all dead, we're all in bondage, and we're all condemned. But that's not all. Embedded in this passage is something yet more Troubling. There are 3 enemies represented in this passage who seek to steal, destroy and replace who God desires and wills us to be. The first one is underlined. It says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins and once we once walked in which we once walked following the course of this world So Paul's going to point out that one of our enemies that seeks to sell us a counterfeit is the world. Now, he's not talking about third rock from the sun. He's talking about... Y'all remember that song, Joe Diffie? That was a good one, wasn't it? He's talking about the culture that is apostate towards God, that rejects His truth, that seeks to tell us whatever they want to hear. And if you have trouble... Figuring out the reference, just think about today's culture. Spot on. There's a second enemy. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is a reference to Satan and his demons. The reality that there is a spiritual war going on. He's letting us know that this enemy is at work today. But then there's a third one. And me and my Aunt Libby kind of, we, we conversate, sometimes argue about this one, but um, it's our flesh. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And, and in our banter with one another, we often say, we wonder which one caused us to do it, you know? Like, was it the world? Was it... Satan, was it our flesh? And we come to the conclusion it doesn't really matter. It's probably a combination of all three. But the flesh is an interesting one. Because that's describing us. And there's a three-pronged attack to keep us dead, in bondage, and condemned. And one of the ways... That the enemy tries to do this is through a counterfeit. They try to sell us a counterfeit identity that's the opposite of what we just covered in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3-14. So, we're going to take a hard pivot right now, and we're going to start looking at five gospel accounts of people to see what their counterfeit identity is. Because it's always easier to point out other people's problems and fallacies, right? We don't want to talk about ourselves. But we'll get there so uh, these are going to be on the screen for folks taking notes hopefully it'll work out for you the scripture reference will be up there we're gonna kind of bounce around and I want to go ahead and tell you uh, <clears throat> I love every one of these gospel accounts I originally had eight and then after I practiced my sermon and it was two and a half hours I had to consolidate <clears throat> uh, so I I, I I whittled it down to five and then God was like hey man you don't have them that long. You've got 35 minutes, 38 if you're lucky, before Sandy walks in and cuts you off because she wants you to come get, their, get your kids. So um, I am going to just barely skim the surface of these, but I, I want you to, to, to be reminded that we're extracting the counterfeit. That's what we're interested in in these stories. So we're not covering, and we're not going to give it justice. They're their own sermons. But we're going to start with... Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 34, if you want to flip there. And this is the story of a woman who has a disorder. Now, this is a beautiful story. Jesus Christ has literally just cast out legions of demons from a man. And He comes back across the Sea of Galilee, and as soon as He gets out of the boat... uh, Jairus is going to approach him, a synagogue leader, and he's going to ask Jesus to come do another miracle for his daughter. So Jesus is literally on the way with this huge crowd of people who know Jairus because he's very prominent, and they know that they've heard the miracles that Jesus is doing. So there's this following, and we pick the story up in verse 20, and it says, "So Jesus went with him and a large crowd." The story goes on to say that immediately she she feels her 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 uh, her disease her disorder go away she's immediately healed and and almost in the scene of her just trying to float away Jesus wants to he wants her to acknowledge it publicly and again, I can't get into this because it would take. Take me over my time limit. But look, Jesus wants her to acknowledge that publicly for several reasons. But she finds herself at the feet of Jesus, trembling and terrified because of what's just happened and the fact that she's now going to have to publicly profess this. But let me just tell you, it was a, it was a holy, it was a righteous fear. It was a reverent fear. And it was a testimony. That's what it was. It was a testimony of what Christ had just done for. Because Christ had just identified her counterfeit. You see, the woman with the disorder, her counterfeit was the disorder. This disorder had put her in bondage. It had authority over her. It had driven her into isolation from her culture. It dictated her social life. It even dictated her spiritual life. She couldn't even go worship. She had spent everything and expended everything to try to shake it, and it ultimately just pushed her to a, a place of desperation. But I love what Jesus tells her in verse 34. When she's at His feet and she's just told the whole truth, she's just proclaimed what He's done for He says, Daughter... Your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. He restores her. Immediately gives her the genuine thing and takes that counterfeit away. Counterfeits seek to steal, destroy, and replace our identity. And this woman recognized that and she saw the one who could redeem it. The next story that we're going to find, gospel account, is in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. It's about the rich young ruler. In this particular story, Jesus is on his way somewhere and a guy runs up to him and he's described as a a rich young ruler, and he falls on his knees before Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ looks at him and says, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God. And by the way, you know the commandments. Apparently he was religious. You shouldn't murder, you shouldn't commit adultery, you shouldn't steal, give false testimony, defraud, and honor your father and your mother. Listen to his response. Teacher, he declared... I have kept these since I was a boy. I'm really good. I'm very religious, he professes. In verse 21, it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now this is interesting because if, if, if you go through uh, the Gospels, what you're going to find is this isn't the first time Jesus will, will, will be asked this question. And in a lot of the other accounts, there's a different motive behind why people are asking especially with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But I think this guy was being genuine because he wasn't testing Jesus. He had a question. His posture, falling down to his feet, proved that he respects Him. It was a way of honoring a rabbi then. And he asked the question, and it says Jesus looks at him and loves him. And Jesus is about to tell him his counterfeit. He says, There's one thing you lack. Go sell everything you have and just give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then you come and follow me. Before I can restore your identity, I need you to get rid of your counterfeit, which was his wealth. I need you to get rid of the the thing that validates you. I need you to get rid of the thing that gives you your prominence and your prestige. I need you to get rid of the thing that causes all your friends to hang around you. Because it was His... Counterfeit. He was finding his identity in that. Now look, this guy gets a bad rap. I've I've read a lot of commentaries about him, and we we don't hear anything else about him that we know of in scripture, but it says when Jesus tells him this, that his face falls and he goes away sad. Because he was very wealthy. He had great wealth. So it's not my opinion that wealth was his counterfeit. Christ tells us. But I am encouraged that at least he was broken about it to a degree. I don't know where he ended up. I can't take any liberties about that. But I'm, I'm encouraged at least it made him sad. And that is the first step, Right? On the path to salvation. Many of us have professed faith in Christ. A lot of that started with brokenness, sadness over our sin. The next passage we're going to turn to is Luke chapter 23, verses 33 through 43. And this is, a, this is a dandy. The criminal on the cross. You might have heard this guy described as a robber or a rebel. My translation uses the word criminal and most of the other ones, but anyway. It doesn't really matter why why he's there. The story is going to tell us that he was guilty of whatever he had done. He's going to profess that he was guilty. And whatever he did was bad enough that Rome wanted to literally execute him via crucifixion beside Jesus Christ and his other partner. So it was bad. And we pick up the story in Luke 23, verses 33, and it says, 32 rather, uh, two men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. And then the story transitions and it starts talking about how Jesus starts praying to the Father. And other gospel accounts will say that both criminals, both men, on its left and right, will start heaping insults on him, making fun of him, which is just crazy to me. If I'm nailed to a cross, I probably don't say anything. I'm probably just crying, hoping to die. But somehow they find it in them to make fun of the other guy, join in with the crowd. But somewhere along the way, we don't know how long they were there, somewhere along the way, it becomes apparent that one of the criminals... He starts thinking. He starts thinking that maybe he's got it wrong about this guy. In verse 39 uh, of Luke 23, we read that one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. And he says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us too. They know at this point who Jesus is, or at least who he claims to be. And in verse 40, it says, But the other criminal rebuked him, not Jesus, the one who was making fun, and says, Don't you fear God? Since you and I are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. You know what that is? That's acknowledgement of sin. He just acknowledged that what he had chased, what gave him his passion and his thrill, and, or whatever crime he was committing that was this egregious, whatever that was, he's just admitted it before everybody standing there, but also before Jesus. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, but this man, he's done nothing wrong. You've got to remember We don't know how long they're hanging there on the cross, but all this is being talked about and insults and Jesus is praying and this guy comes to the realization that the Messiah is hanging beside him. Verse 42, Then he said, Jesus, remember me. Jesus Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now, by all rights, if this guy had not believed that Jesus was the Son of God, he wouldn't have believed Jesus was going to a kingdom. But his time next to Jesus, even on the cross, even at the point of death, Jesus reveals who he is to this guy, and this guy professes that I know who you are, and I need you to remember, i.e., Forgive me, restore me, and take me to that place that Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. That's not written, by the way, but you know what I'm saying. There's a place in glory. Remember me when you go there, please. It's a beautiful profession of faith. And we know it is because in verse 43, Jesus answers him and says, Truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That criminal who was guilty, who was under condemnation, who had real consequences for his actions, that criminal would be with Christ that day because Christ took His counterfeit away. Our last passage is found in Luke 15. It's a very familiar passage. It's going to be our last one as the day, of the day as we wrap up. But Luke 15 is the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. We're going to find two characters in this parable. By the way, they're not real. They're fictional characters. The first three we talked about were real people. These other two are, are fictional parabolic characters, but it doesn't change the principle about the counterfeit that Christ is going to show us through the story. And so, just to sum the story up, because it is a longer parable, there's, there's a son, and he's, a, he's the younger of two that we're told about, and he goes to his father and he says, Look... I just want to have a good time at your expense, so do a fire sale, sell your farm, sell the livestock, sell the cat, sell the dog, whatever they had back then. Give me the currency for it so I can go to a foreign country and just live it up. And the father complies. And he sells everything, and he actually gives it to both brothers. Says he divides it up amongst the two brothers. And we know the story. This... This kid, this young man, gets to this place and he spends it on sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Just pew, it's gone. There's actually a syndrome. You know, we've got a syndrome for everything now. But there's a syndrome that some people have used to describe this guy called the Peter Pan syndrome. And I kind of like that. I'm going to adopt it when I yell at people on 280. But um, it's, it's adults who have a problem growing up. And handling responsibility. Who are just immature. And reckless. And selfish and self-centered. And here's the thing. uh, We know how the story ends with this son. The son will come to the end of himself. And it says he'll actually come to his senses. And he'll begin to reconcile. And he'll go back to the father with the request of not sonship. Don't restore me. I don't want to refer to you. Probably his father, and more. I'll just call you boss, and just hire me. I know my way around the farm. I don't deserve to be your son, but I'll just—I'll be your your servant. And we know what happens. The father restores him, and he says, "For this son of mine was dead." and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. Counterfeits counterfeits seek to steal, destroy, and replace our identity in Christ. And this guy's counterfeit was his immaturity and his self-centeredness. But lastly, there's another brother in this parable. And it's the older brother. And after the father takes back in the younger son, and he redeems him and restores him, he then begins to celebrate because that's what we should do when somebody finds new life in Christ. Thank you, Jeff. You get a donut. But this older brother, he's out in the field, and I want us to listen to the way he reacts to this news. A servant runs out there and tells him what's going on. And it says in verse 28, the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Does that sound like the joy we find in Christ? that someone would have the perspective of slaving for God and just laboriously following His law and His orders? No. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I'm confused. I thought this guy was angry at his brother for coming back home. Because in this culture, if he would have came back home by all rights, he would have been stoned to death By not the father or even the father's family, the people in the community would have done it on their behalf so they wouldn't have had to expel the energy because that's how worthless this guy would have been for what he had done. Why is he mad at the father? Why is the older son making these allegations? All these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed you. And you never did anything to celebrate me. But this son of yours... Oh, now he's going to get mad at him and bring him in. That's how these kind of people work. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And this is the last words we'll ever hear from this guy. His counterfeit was his legalistic mentality and his comparative nature. He thought he could earn his father's favor through his self-righteousness. He's critical. He's resentful. He's angry. He's unforgiving. He refuses to celebrate sinners repenting. And he's always comparing himself to others because it ultimately validates him. It makes him feel good to see those that don't measure up to the standard he has set. This guy scares me more than any of our other characters. Because I can relate to him. And unfortunately, in our churches, and in our family of faith, and I'm not just talking about here, I'm talking in general. These sins that I just talked about, these counterfeits, we we have learned to justify them better than any of the other sins. I like to call them, they're the refined sins. We feel just in feeling that way towards people. As we begin to close, I do want to invite the band up. Uh, I've got five minutes before Cindy walks in. Here's the thing, the next slide, I want to make a statement. We've been talking about counterfeit identity, but there's a bit of a twist to this, you see. See, counterfeit is, is what, what the enemy intends to seek or to, to steal, destroy, and replace our identity in Christ. But it doesn't mean we have to fall for it. But when we do, it paves the road to idolatry. So when you start thinking about counterfeit identity in your head, if left unchecked, those become idols in our heart. And if you're just curious, as the band begins to to play, think about this. Ask yourself these questions. I was told by a wise person one time that, you know, when you preach a sermon, just leave a couple of rocks in people's shoe. So I want to give you a few pebbles to take home with you. What validates you? Where do you find your value? What in your life affirms you? Who carries that burden? What do you delight in most of all when you think about your life? What what evokes the most fear in your life? That if you lost it, it just terrifies you, you can't see yourself going on living what has that kind of authority over you, that kind of influence what can we not live without if God was to take it away what could we not live without and if, and if he stripped it away it would just destroy us the answer to those questions are going to be your counterfeit possibly your idol Now look, I want to ask you to bow your heads. And I want us to just think, the band's about to play a song. And the name of this song is Make Room. And it literally talks about making room in our heart. And the only way to do that is to take the counterfeits, to take the, the household idols. And we have to make room for God. And He wants to make room because... He doesn't want us to settle for the counterfeit, for the idolatry, because it's going to kill us. But I wonder if this morning you relate to the woman who was ruled by the disorder. Or maybe you have a disability or you've received a, a diagnosis. Is there something that causes physical and emotional and spiritual pain in your life that's driving you to isolation and it just seeks to steal any joy and happiness you have. It's probably a counterfeit. How about the rich young ruler? Are you blessed enough to be wealthy? But does that cause a sense of security and prestige in your life? Do your friends and the, and the power that wealth brings, is that where it affirms you and defines you? Because it's the perfect imitator. Wealth is the perfect imitator of what Christ brings until you lose it or until you die and realize it has no power, no authority over you. It's counterfeit. How about the criminal? Maybe your past. Maybe you have a a past that there was actual consequences for your actions and your behavior. Maybe it was legal or maybe it was out of a relationship and you feel worthless. It invokes depression. It destroys any hope you see in the future. Is that possibly who you could relate to? How about the prodigal son? Are you tired of being selfish? Self-centered? Oblivious to responsibility? Oblivious to the Holy Spirit knocking on your heart? Just asking you to think about this stuff? Just for once. Stop thinking about yourself. Is that possibly what you relate to? And then finally, maybe you just have unforgiveness towards other people in your life. Maybe you harbor bitterness and resentment towards someone who actually hurts you. Maybe you feel justified in it. And you've just become so critical and judgmental and you love comparing yourself to others because it's, it just makes you feel good to see that failure. It's going to destroy you. I want to pray for us right now. And after I pray, Dave and I will be down here at the front. But here's what I want to encourage you to do. The enemy would love nothing more than for you to just walk out of here after this song. And do nothing. And I don't know where you are today. But if the Holy Spirit is dealing with you. Or if your flesh is dealing with you or if Satan's dealing with you, there's a reason. And all I'm going to ask you to do is one of three things. I don't just stand up here so you can see me sing, because you probably can't see me anyway. I'm too short after you stand. But here's the deal. I would love for you to come down here and grab me or Dave. And we don't have to have a two-hour conversation, but you can just say, I need to talk to you guys later, and I just don't want you to let me out of here. There's a little bit of accountability with that. It's what Jesus did to the woman with the disorder. It was healthy for her. It was the right thing. But it took courage, and she was terrified to do it. There's a second thing you can do. Maybe you're not that person. That's okay. You came with somebody, hopefully. If you didn't, you're sitting by somebody. Tell them that. Just during the song, just tap them and go, we, we got to talk. I got to tell you something. Thirdly, there's a card that you can fill out and drop in the plate later outside of Connections. But please don't walk out of here today settling for a counterfeit. Don't leave the idol. Heavenly Father, as we come before you now in this time of response, I just pray for courage. I pray for boldness. Help us take our next step with you. We all need to, to some degree. And I pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.